1: American Glutton Podcast has a Patreon. Do you hate commercials? Well, we've got a Patreon. Do you want bonus episodes? That's on the Patreon. Do you want to hang out and chat in our Discord channel? That's part of the Patreon, too. We even have an option where you can leave me voicemails. All on the Patreon. So check it out today. Patreon.com slash American Glutton. We have a Patreon. Hi. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. American Glutton is brought to you by Trifecta. Benjamin Franklin said, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. And he couldn't be more right. One of the biggest issues I've had in dieting over the past decades has been, I didn't do enough diligent meal prep. I didn't have what I needed to hand when I needed it. As soon as I got that straightened out, it all went better. And I got to tell you, the biggest boon to meal prep I've had has been Trifecta. They have what I need, when I need it, ready to go. It's here. It's in my fridge. I don't have to think about anything. I know when to eat. I know the amount. Boom. Done. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Trifecta has literally changed my life. Go to trifectanutrition.com slash American Glutton where new customers can save up to 40%. Again, that's trifectanutrition.com slash American Glutton. Today on American Glutton, my guest is Chris Cresser. He is an educator and clinician in the fields of functional medicine and ancestral health and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. I really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I hope you do too. Chris Kresser, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Ethan, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Dude, so for for me, my, my entire life, since I was a little kid, um, I... I was put on diets at a very young age. And, and I, there was like kind of an evolution there where um, I, I didn't really know what was happening, but my mom would put me on these diets. And, and the, and the initial intention was get this guy to lose weight. Right. And at some point she kind of went like, well, nothing's working. So it must be something else. And I was put on every different variation of a diet. And, When I finally wanted to lose weight, um, I had to get really, really strict and responsible. Now, I say that, but I know that many people do diets for different reasons. So I come into looking at the way people eat and go, that guy doesn't need to lose weight. Not always realizing that the context, I have no idea what the context is. Somebody might want to lose weight. You know, I I had a friend who was very lean, who went on this diet and and I could not understand it. And then eventually his eczema cleared up. And so I really want to talk to you about the the various reasons, because it's hard for me sometimes to step out of my own small bubble of reality and go like, I see in America just like what to me looks like a lot of horrible choices, right? But they're horrible choices for me because they make me fat and I don't want to be fat. And I I just am not dealing with a lot of the other stuff that sometimes I think about it in this way. Many people wear obesity in different ways, right? Like somebody could have super high cholesterol or uh, bad lipids and that's something they have to deal with, but they don't show uh, adipose tissue in the same way that I do or inflammation or eczema or all these autoimmune diseases. And I suspect that a lot of it is caused by diet.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So sorry. um, Yeah. I want to hit you with all of it right off the top. (laughs) It's a good, it's a great start though, because you know, 70% of Americans are overweight now and, and over 40% are obese according to the CDC, which is just insane. If you think about it, I mean, those are, that's a terrible trend (laughs) and it's just getting worse every year. We're not stopping it. We're going in the wrong direction. And Going back to your childhood, I treat a lot of kids in my clinical practice and, you know, many of them are overweight and we're seeing more and more kids who are overweight now, kids who are being diagnosed with type two diabetes at age eight years old, you know, I mean, it's, it's just crazy, right? So my, my belief, my perspective is that one of the biggest driving factors of weight gain and obesity is that we are overfed, but we're undernourished, right? And uh, there's there's actually a, a scientific theory about this called the protein leverage hypothesis, which holds that if we don't eat enough, you know, really good quality protein, we'll just keep eating carbohydrates and fat, um, in you know, because to to compensate for that, essentially, to try to meet that that basic protein needs, I think there's also a nutrient leverage hypothesis uh, at work, which is. If we're not getting enough of the essential vitamins and minerals like b12 folate iron magnesium etc these are these are you know the body needs 40 micronutrients to function properly if we're not getting enough of those we'll just keep eating you know calories in the attempt to get that many nutrients that's super interesting i i come from i
1: seem to have women in my life who are obsessed with vitamins my mother started she was very into vitamins Uh, And then I got into drugs. And so it became like a tablet has to make me feel a certain way, or I don't trust it. Right. And now I have a wife who's super into vitamins too. And so my experience has been like, she hands me a handful of vitamins. I take them. I don't experience anything and I lose trust in it. However, my diet becomes so fixed and rigid that after a certain point, I do feel run down and start to go like I'm missing something because I I probably don't eat enough vegetables and and then I don't get enough out of it. So I take like athletic greens or something like this and suddenly I feel better. And so I, I believe, you know, it's hard for me to to just trust in I'm taking a tablet every day and I don't yeah. experience any relief, but I know that when I take magnesium, I feel better. And I know that when I eat more vegetables or get or have uh, something that has the nutrients that the vegetables are missing, I feel better. So I, 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 I believe there's some truth to that. And I saw a, a map recently that showed um, America. Uh, and it was all color coordinated America of 1990 and America of today. And it showed the rates of obesity and it's insane what's happened just since 1990, how, how, how big or how overweight
2: America has gotten in the last 30 years. And not just overweight, like the chronic rates of chronic disease are skyrocketing as well. So we, we know now six in 10 Americans have, a chronic disease and four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases and that's just going up as well. Now 35% of kids have a chronic disease and that's up from just single digit percentage back in the eighties and nineties. So we're talking about big changes, even in our lifetime. And it's, it's a huge concern because those diseases destroy our quality of life, you know, make our life subjectively and objectively worse but they're also threatening to bankrupt the healthcare system. You know, if if the current trends continue, some projections suggest that by 2050, our healthcare expenditures will bankrupt the United States. You know, essentially, healthcare expenditure will take over the entire federal budget. We won't have anything left for defense, education, (laughs) et cetera. So we're we're not talking about just an individual problem here. We're talking about a a broad-scale societal problem. And what you said about nutrients and just you know, whether you're talking about getting them from food or supplements, I think both are important. It is a problem because in, it, it can take years for nutrient deficiencies to fully develop. And so we can't expect that if we make a dietary change, we're going to see all those, you know, effects of nutrient deficiency disappear overnight. It's right. going to take months, many months to replete uh, adequate nutrient stores. Actually, some stu- there was a study just published a couple months ago on multivitamin use in the elderly and it showed that they steadily improved over a 2 year period their cognitive function improved they were less likely to have memory lapses or issues that you know a lot of older adults experience with cognitive decline and it took about 2 years to reach the full improvement after that it plateaued so that's a really good example of how um, these nutrient deficiencies develop over time and it takes a while to reverse them. And you're not going to feel like in one day, like, oh my God, it's all better. Yeah, no, I know it, it,
1: it, it's slightly counterintuitive. The other thing that's so uh, counterintuitive is, um, being overweight and yet nutrient and like micronutrient Mm -hmm. deficient because, you know, I, I look around and there's some part of me that wants to imagine that in America, at least we're all Kings, right? If you're, you know, for, for the history of mankind, it was like, if you were overweight, you were part of the elite of the elite. And that was like one of the big struggles that you'd beaten. And now to, to be able to, to have that, but also be sick because of it and, and, and not getting everything you need because of it, 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 it is a, a kind of a perspective shift that's difficult.
2: That's an insightful comment and it's something that I think really does trip a lot of, uh, of people up. The big challenge in before the 20th century was starvation and right. malnutrition <laughs> yeah. that, that's what that's what we were trying to overcome that's you know even the Green Revolution, in the forties and fifties, where it was all about increasing yield, you know, adding nitrogen to the soil through, uh, fertilizers and other chemicals that was considered to be a huge win because most of the, the biggest problem was, uh, mountain, not getting enough calories basically. And, and to be clear, that is still a huge problem in many different parts of the world, not in the industrialized world that we live in, but in many other developing countries, that is still a problem, but what ha- Happened in our in our effort to just hit the gas pedal on calories, we forgot about nutrients and the really critical role that they play. And so we created exactly the situation that you just described, where we're we're overfed. the The average calorie intake for Americans and people in the countries like the U.K. and Australia has gone up dramatically, but nutrient intake has either stayed steady or declined. So. If you look at the latest statistics in in the US, it's pretty shocking. 60% of the calories that the average American consumes on a daily basis come from ultra processed food, not just processed food, ultra processed food. So we're talking about, (laughs) you know, bread, cookies, cakes, chips, you know, all the food that comes in a bag, in a box, soda pop, fast food, pizza, chicken nuggets. These foods, the problem with them, Are that they're very high in calories but they're very low in nutrients so you eat them you overeat them very often because they're designed to be overeaten uh they're made by big food companies that that actually engineer them to trigger our the reward mechanisms in our brain similar to drugs and alcohol and they they actually make us overeat them uh, because that's good business uh, you know (laughs) basically and in that, but but in the process of overeating those foods, we're under consuming the nutrients that we actually need for you know vibrant health and and a long life, and that's that's the situation we're in now. So, is it, is there any diet possible that allow like
1: that would allow someone to escape um, to get all the nutrients they need,
2: but escape taking supplements? I wish the answer i wish you know when i started my career 15 years ago i would have said yes and uh i've changed my view over the course of that 15 year period for a few reasons number one i i've treated thousands of patients and i test every single person who walks through the door for nutrient status and i can literally count probably on two hands the number of people who are not nutrient deficient at least at least one but often several nutrient deficiencies And my patient population is not the average Joe. You know, I'm generally treating people who are pretty sophisticated in their understanding, they're already on a healthy diet, they're doing a lot of the right things. And for me to see that almost all of these people were struggling with nutrient deficiency was a huge wake up call. And then that's what caused me to dive into the scientific literature. And I've read probably every paper on nutrient status and nutrient deficiency that's been published in the past 10 years. And what you can see, and, and these statistics are all publicly available, is you know according to like to the Linus Pauling Institute, who's one, which is one of the most august institutions that tracks this stuff. Um, you know, you've got 94% of people deficient in vitamin D, 90, 90 over 90% deficient in choline, 89% deficient in vitamin E. Um you know, it just goes on and on. We're talking about not just like single digit small percentages of people who are deficient. We're talking about the vast majority of Americans are deficient in the vast majority of nutrients. Now, you could say, okay, well, that's just because of diet, and it absolutely is the main reason, but there are other factors that can lead us to to have problems even if we're eating a really healthy diet. So one is decline in soil quality. Um, there's a famous study that suggests that we'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same nutrition that our grandparents got by eating a single orange. It's crazy. That's profound. That's yeah. two generations. We're not talking about 3,000 years. We're talking about two generations. Right. Uh, and you see that in all, pro, uh, all the fruits and vegetables and also in animal products like meat because they eat stuff that comes out of the soil as well and we get our nutrients from them. And so um, that's a huge change. There's a growing time toxic burden with heavy metals, air pollution, water pollution, pesticides, herbicides, all this stuff decreases nutrient availability. Uh chronic disease actually decreases our absorption of nutrients and increases our demand for nutrients. Uh changes to the food system. Uh the average carrot now travels almost 2000 miles before we eat it. Well guess what? As soon as you take the carrot out of the ground, it starts losing nutrition. So if it takes a week for it to get to our pl- Late and it's all through that journey, it's losing vitamins and minerals and, and phytonutrients. So to answer your question, I absolutely think that a whole foods, nutrient-dense diet, and this could be a lot of different variations, could be paleo, could be a low-carb diet, could be a Mediterranean type of diet, all of these diets feature real food. You know, so that's, that's absolutely the starting place and the foundation. But because of these other factors now, I no longer think it's possible for most people unless they're being extremely vigilant, which I is very rare in my experience, even with people who are motivated. I don't think it's possible to do it with food alone.
1: Yeah. M- most of the people that I a- a- am in close contact with who, who are at the pinnacle of health, that, as I would k- look at them are taking some kind of supplements. And so I, 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 and, and, and I have an aversion to supplements and I I believe it's because as a kid, they were kind of pushed on me, but they were pushed on me in um, conjunction with these diets that I didn't want to do. And so it became this like thing of like, get that away from me. I don't want any part of this, but um, I I recognize that that I eat mostly a whole foods diet, right? My my, um, I will actually look for uh, cal- calorie light foods to eat as a treat. Um, that that I'm that I recognize I'm not getting anything from except some kind of banal pleasure. Right? <laughs> so I'm getting this taste and the sensation of chewing, and then I feel something in my stomach, but I don't want to receive anything from it. And, um, I I feel better when I take some supplements now and it did take a while. I also think that there's some weird thing to the time where when I was eating garbage for the most part, uh, I felt crappy all the time and didn't even recognize it. Like couldn't recognize the effects that these foods had on me until I got them really out of my system. And then when I had them again, I would feel almost hung over. And that was for me, this kind of like, Oh, maybe there is something to this food is, is, is having a, a an adverse effect.
2: Yeah. I think that's a great point. Most, most people, I have been nutrient deficient for so long, perhaps always, you know, going all the way back into childhood because the, uh, you know, in many cases that our diet patterns start very early, you know, with our fa- family of origin, some people are more fortunate than others in that regard, you know, uh, in terms of what they were exposed to when they were a kid. But, um, if you were, if you started your life in a nutrient deficient state. And just persisted that way you you really don't know how what's possible in, ter- in terms of how you could feel if you had optimal nutrient status and there's a there's a uh, renowned professor of biochemistry at UC Berkeley dr. Bruce Ames and he's probably best known for something he calls triage, which is a bit complex but i I'll, I'll simplify it um, Basically, he says all proteins and the enzymes in the body can be classified in two categories: survival proteins versus longevity proteins. And survival proteins are, of course, just the ones we need for immediate, short-term survival—keep us alive, right? Like, what are what are the very basic things we need? Longevity proteins those that contribute to feeling, really, you know, and performing at a high level, and both mentally and physically, and then you know, living a long and healthy life, and what he says is that if we don't get enough nutrients the nutrients that we do get will all will be prioritized for those short term survival proteins and there'll be very little left over for the longer term you know processes that are really what uh, we're interested in like and i want to be clear here that I'm not. When I say nutrient deficiencies, I'm not talking about full-blown clinical deficiencies that would cause diseases like rickets and scurvy, right? And pellagra. We're, we're getting you know, just enough to avoid scurvy. Exactly. Great. Like we're 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 past that again. Not everywhere in the world, but in the industrialized world, thankfully we're past that. But I don't. You know, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go out on a limb here, Ethan, and guess that you your health goals are a little bit higher than just avoiding scurvy. And, well, in
1: in fairness, they you know, they weren't. They are now, certainly, but, you know, when I when I started to, like, actually take responsibility for what I ate, my only goal was lose weight. Right. And yeah. so and, and so I found that 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 I was able to do that in pretty much any method I chose. It became more complicated when I set longer term goals, like I want to maintain weight loss because like weight loss as a goal, I would lose weight and then the goal was gone and then I'd gain weight because I no longer had that goal. And so it it became very difficult. But in fairness, you know, I. I, I don't like to think of food as good or bad because I don't really generally like to think of anything as good or bad. I think of the, the, adding these moral distinctions to things. It, it, it doesn't really make sense to me. But when I put all my entire life into that context, I can see many choices as not being beneficial to me. And, and, and now, certainly, today health and, and more to your point of longevity and, and, and these more like, uh, tweaked goals that have really nothing anymore today to do with weight loss are for sure a part of my plan.
2: Right. Yeah. And mine too. And probably most people I talk to, if I sit them down and say, Hey, you know, do you, if, if the choice is like, just avoid scurvy and rickets and like barely, barely get by and die at a pretty early age and miss your grandparents, you know, get, or your grandchildren getting married. And would you choose that? Or would you choose, you know, living a long healthy life where you maintain your mental and physical faculties until, you know, basically the day you die in your sleep, like most, almost everybody's going to choose that, that latter, um, path. And, but it's interesting because unless you really make it explicit like that, we can kind of go on autopilot and make choices that are actually leading to that other outcome, Yeah, it, you know? Because like you've pointed out all along, there's just a lot of unconscious stuff that happens. And if nobody sits us down and actually asks us that question very explicitly, like, what do you want? What yeah. is your goal? Like, how, how do you want things to end up? Where Do you want to be in a diaper in a wheelchair? For the last 10 years of your shorter life, or do you want to be out, you know, hiking and and you want to be enjoying your grandkids or even your great grandkids? And do you want to be able to hold it, have a coherent conversation with them and, you know, like be able to show up in that way? Like um, most people are going to say yes to that. But a lot of people don't realize that the choices they make around their diet and and their nutrient intake are exactly what's going to determine which of those paths they end up on. 100%. Yeah, I'm a sober guy and and it took a
1: lot for me to get sober. I've been sober for a long time, but um, that was kind of a, a hurdle I had to cross even before I could confront my weight, I I wasn't even thinking about my weight, And so I, I, I do think about this universe in, in a similar way. And so uh, the problem I sometimes come to with all of this is like, if, if you got a guy who's 500 pounds and you go, let's handle every little minute detail in your life right now, Sometimes that can be so overwhelming that it collapses upon them and they go like, well, I can't do any of it. So for me, it was important that like the evolution that I had was okay, handle weight. And then once weight is handled, now I can get into all these more specific things. You know, when I went into rehab the last time I went into rehab multiple times, but if, if you had said like, We're going into rehab because you're going to die from the drugs you're doing. But while you're there, we're also going to handle weight and cigarettes and your sleep and you're going to get an exercise. I don't think I make it. I think it's like, what are the orders of magnitude? What's what? Where are my priorities? That said, um, I, I would recommend to anyone, like if if you're if you're overwhelmed by all of this and you want to make one change. Just start shopping at the uh, outer perimeter of the grocery store. Don't go inside. If you just make that change, I think that that will be beneficial.
2: Yeah, we have a very similar heuristic there. I say if it comes in a bag or a box, you probably shouldn't be eating much of it. So right. it's, it's very similar to what you're talking about. Shop at the outside and eat as, as little as of stuff that comes in a bag or a box. And, and I do think that's, that's, you know, there's the 80-20 rule is very much in effect when it comes to diet. Um, if you want to take it one step further, I would say reduce your intake of sugar, flour and seed, and seed oils. You know, the all of the stuff that's fried basically. Right. If you if you knock out sugar, flour and fried foods and you just eat the stuff on the periphery of the grocery store, that's half the battle at least because yeah. all those foods are going to be way more nutrient dense. And you're gonna start feeling a lot better. And then, like you said, once you start generating that momentum, it's easier to make the other changes. Yeah, and try I, to do it all at once. It's really hard. I I get
1: the the I get into a the weeds here with with all of this because I'll make a cooking video on for Instagram and I'll show that I'm using like a quarter teaspoon of. Uh, sesame toasted sesame seed oil for flavor. And then I'll have all these people yelling at me about seed oils. And I'm like, guys, my quarter teaspoon of sesame seed oil is completely negligible. I do not think that, but to your point, like the amount of food that's fried in this stuff in America, if you excise that from your diet, you're going to be better off.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I think it's important to, um, to reiterate the 80-20 aspect of this, like right. there are other there there are lots of reasons that we eat food. One is is to sustain ourselves and get the nutrients we need and be healthy, but there are social reasons as well. You know, like going out to dinner with friends or family, um, eating foods actually simply for the pleasure of eating them. I I, I believe there's some value in that. Um, I don't think we have to be too crazy and and rigid about this stuff. Like we we should still enjoy. Uh, the foods we eat, we should feel like we can go out and have a good time with our friends and family, and not worry too much about it. Now, of course, there are special cases where if someone's really sick and they need to be really strict, like some of my patients, of course, that makes sense. If someone's on a really focused weight loss diet and they and and, and they feel like any kind of cheating is a slippery slope, um, which is also sometimes true with drug or alcohol addiction, then that's fine. Not, you know, in in those cases, a hundred zero is probably a better idea, but ultimately I think we want to get to a point where we have a healthy relationship with food and that means balance, you know, like just being free to, like you said earlier, eat something because just because you enjoy it, but knowing that that's not what you're doing all of the time, (laughs) the rest of the time you're getting the nutrients you need. Yeah. As a sober person, I do, I
1: do like to set hard lines for myself. I like guide rails. And so that for me means like fast food. And and when I say fast food, like I can go to an airport and occasionally if I've, you know, if I miss a flight or, or I'm delayed and I find myself in Dallas, Texas, I might go get a sandwich somewhere. Right. But that is extraordinarily rare. And there are a lot of places that I will absolutely not go to because you know, I, I McDonald's for one, I, I, I will not go to McDonald's because they're so ubiquitous that if I open the door to that being a part of the stuff that I eat, it's going to creep back into my life somehow. So that's a hard line. I I won't go there. um, And I think that's okay. But like, that's a rule I've set up for myself. And, and I, I would never say like, nobody can ever go to McDonald's again, because uh, to your point, I, I think that that balance is important, but I think that if somebody sets a rule, like I don't eat seed oils, that's good too. Good for you. Don't eat seed oils. If that helps you, then you shouldn't do that.
2: Absolutely. It's, it's very individual. You know, I've always said there's no one size fits all approach and that's really true with diet. And we all have to kind of find what our our boundaries are, you know, what's the, what are the absolute no's like you're talking about McDonald's or whether seed oils or sugar, uh, refined sugar. Um, it's not, it's not going to be the same for each person. I think once you find those things, then for me, like after 15 years of treating patients and I've trained 2000 healthcare practitioners in over 50 countries in the world,
3: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: If you're struggling to lose
0: weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care. A leading telehealth provider with
1: doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you
2: qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com.
3: Moonpig.com.
2: I was, you know, in the last few years, I was thinking, you know, there's so many choices that we can make on a day-to-day basis to, that impact our health. And there's, there's so much confusion. It can be so overwhelming. Uh, it's sometimes hard to get insight on like with lab tests and get the right help you know, with, from your doctor. And I wanted to have a way of really just like simplifying. What is one thing that pretty much everybody could do that would dramatically improve virtually every aspect of their health, whether they're dealing with a chronic disease, they wanna sleep better, they wanna have more energy, they wanna get pregnant. Whatever the goal is, what is one thing that could help? And the answer was boosting nutrient intake. And that's, it's, it's what in medicine is called a pleiotropic intervention. It means it has multiple beneficial effects and it makes everything better. So exercise is another good example of that. You don't exercise for one reason, usually. I mean, most people exercise for multiple reasons. They feel good when they do it, they feel good afterwards it helps them lose weight or to keep the weight off. It helps with their appearance and they want to look better. I mean, there's, it helps with their cognitive function. There's multiple different benefits. And I think boosting nutrient intake falls into that same category where it just makes everything better. Okay. Now with that, um, is it a
1: broad spectrum? Is there one nutrient that most are lacking that we increase and we see a, a profound benefit in it? Like, is it a multivitamin? Is it a multimineral? What, or is it just generally you got to boost nutrients?
2: Yeah, it's pretty general. I mean, there are definitely some nutrients that are of greater concern. As I mentioned, uh, vitamin D, there's, uh, you know, over 90% probably aren't getting the optimal level. Calcium, vitamin A, vitamin E, um, iron, magnesium, zinc. uh, Those are all Uh, really important. Those are essential vitamins and minerals. And then now there are, we know over the last 30 years, there's been a lot of research on what are called phytonutrients. Phyto means plant. So these are nutrients that are found in plant foods that are not vitamins or minerals, but they're things like bioflavonoids, which people have probably heard of, polyphenols, uh, lignans, fiber. These are really important. We can live without them, but we probably won't live very well right. <laughs> without them.
1: Does the so, uh, does the uh, anti-plant, because there's a whole movement which baffles
2: my mind. Carnivore. That it,
1: that, yeah, advocates, yeah, that is yeah. like plants are
2: poisonous and this whole thing. Does that drive you crazy at all? Uh, it, it does a little bit for sure. I mean, so what I'd say about that is I just want to recognize the fact that I do know some of my own patients and friends who've really benefited from the carnivore diet and it's been kind of a life-saving thing for them. These are typically people with pretty severe like autoimmune issues or other problems that haven't responded to anything else. And I think the benefit that people get is almost like fasting because when you eat only animal products, it get they get absorbed very high up in your digestive tract and there's nothing left over. Uh, to feed harmful gut bacteria that are that are in your colon, and I think in a lot of these cases, people who are, have really disrupted gut microbiota, and so when they when they eat only meat, it really gives their gut a a rest or a reset, and that's what leads to the health improvements. and um, that's great, but the problem is that meat, animal products and plant products are rich in different nutrients. So animal foods are, are high in the essential vitamins and minerals like B12 and iron, zinc, like I mentioned before, whereas plants are really rich in um, those phytonutrients. So the carotenoids, the bioflavonoids, the polyphenols, the lignans, the fiber, the beta-glucans, and those there's lots and lots of research showing that those are beneficial. Now, it is true that plants produce toxins to defend themselves. Um, they're diff- You know, the plants can't run away, and they can't. They can't throw a punch. Right. Uh, at least, they have no teeth so, <laughs> to bite you back. They have no teeth. They, you know, there's some plants that actually do have those kinds of mechanisms, but um, you know, for the most part, plants are stationary, and they needed to evolve a different kind of defense system, and. and and that defense system was toxic and is toxins. But the dose makes the poison, right? So if even water can be toxic. If you drink too much salt. of it, you can die. Yeah. Salt can be toxic. You can have absolutely. a fatal dose of salt. Uh, iron is toxic. If you consume too much iron, you can your, your internal organs will literally rust. There's a condition called hemochromatosis. Uh, that 's a genetic disease where people store too much iron and it 's fatal if it 's not caught and treated so uh, I think we need to like have a little bit more nuanced understanding of of, of this and and be honest with the fact that there 's lots of things that we consume on a daily basis that are potentially that have that are toxic at high amounts but at small amounts are actually not only not harmful but beneficial so let me give you two examples one is is exercise weightlifting <laughs> so what happens when you lift weights if you lift to failure you're tearing your muscle fibers down right you're 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 basically tearing your muscles to the point where they don't work anymore but what but what happens after that is that they they is, is called a hormetic response so it that horm, it's a fancy way of saying a positive adaptation so you lift very heavy weights then your muscles this is an evolutionary response when we lived in a natural environment where if your muscles failed, that could mean you would die. It, you know, if, if you're running away from a predator and your muscles fail, you get eaten. If you're trying, you know, to lift something, it generally means it's for fitness and survival. And so the body's wired to, if you face that kind of challenge, to try to regrow the muscles bigger and stronger so that next time you meet you lift that weight, you can lift it for more repetitions. That's how your muscles get bigger from lifting weight. So, I mean, you could look at that and say a weightlifting is problematic or toxic because it's breaking down our muscles, but that's obviously not the case, right? right. We can leverage that for benefit. Okay. This is Another, a great again, analogy. I love this analogy. Yeah. Another example is anti, what we call antioxidants. So we've all heard of these foods, you know, blueberries, resveratrol and red wine, etc. That's a bit of a misnomer because these compounds are actually pro-oxidant. I mean is that they induce a little bit of oxidative stress in the body. But what happens is that upregulates our body's internal antioxidant defense system. And so it's it's like a little prod basically or a little prick that causes our own defense system to respond. And that's why those foods are beneficial. They actually are having a pro-oxidant effect that Improves our antioxidant response. So, if you consume those foods in small amounts, as we normally would in a typical diet or drinking a glass of red wine or whatever it is, that has a beneficial impact. But if you go overboard and take, let's say, resveratrol at very high doses for a long period of time, then that will it will push past that hormetic positive adaptation and it will become a negative effect. Yeah. And that's, that's what's happening with these plant toxins. So yes, plants have these toxins, but if we eat a normal amount of plants as human beings have done, by the way, for two, you know, millions of years (laughs) prior to even when we were human, you know, like all the way back to hominid, evolution, uh, you know, we've eaten plants for a very, very long time. If they were truly toxic to us, that behavior would have been eliminated a long time ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 um, it drives me crazy simply because like in every version and, and it's all anecdotal, it's just been my experience and every version of diet that I've done, I feel the best when I'm also having vegetables. So I, there's there's no amount of convincing that, you know, if somebody's saying like they're spraying the vegetables with poison, which has been said too. And it's like, don't, you know, don't eat the poison that they've sprayed on the vegetables. That's fine. But the vegetables themselves always make me feel better. And And when I get super lazy with my diet and the vegetables fall out, I feel like garbage.
2: Yeah. And you can, you can look at, you know, we have many, many studies of ex, of hunter-gatherer societies from like, you know, there aren't many left now, but like there were a lot of studies done in the fifties, sixties, and seventies where anthropologists, medical anthropologists went around the world and they, they studied these, uh, you know, extant hunter-gatherer populations because they wanted to see what their typical diet and lifestyle looked like before they were, you know, inf, before Western civilization (laughs) encroached upon them, you know, and, and changed the way that they live. And universally, in all cases, these people, these cultures ate a combination of plant and animal foods. Now, the specific ratios of animals to plant foods differed from place to place. So you had like the Inuit in the Arctic ate, especially during the winter, when every the whole land is covered with ice and snow, not a lot of plants growing <laughs> at that point. They'll eat mostly you know, sea mammals, um, but they would trade even during that time of year for plant, some, whatever plant foods they could obtain, which suggests that those were still important to them in their diet. And then in the summer, when they had access to plant foods, they, they would eat them as much as they could get them. On the other side of the spectrum, you had groups in like Papua New Guinea and the, uh, the Tuca Senta and, and the Kitavans in the South Pacific who ate a lot of plant foods because that was what was available mangoes, pineapples, you know, all the tr- tropical fruits and taro and yuca and these kinds of uh, starchy foods. And then they would eat f- fish or, you know, whatever animal foods were available. So the, the exact proportions differed, but we've yet to find identify a population that ate only animal foods or only plant foods. Yeah. That's the,
1: that's the fascinating thing for me too, especially about what's being uh, presented. The extremes that are being presented today, kind of like vegan versus carnivore is you can't find that historically in the world. You can, and even with, uh, if you look at the, like the Sikhs who are largely vegetarian,
2: they're still consuming some animal products. Absolutely. And that can make a big difference because uh, let's say you're you're a vegetarian, but you're eating egg yolks, you're eating dairy products, which are a rich source of calcium and other beneficial nutrients. That's a very different nutrient profile than if you're a, a vegan eating z- zero animal products at all. And, you know, you, you can just look at the nutrient contents of different foods and then look at the nutrient requirements that humans have, and you can see where there's gonna be a problem with a vegan diet. You know, B12, calcium, iron, zinc, long chain fatty acids like EPA and DHA that you find in seafood, uh, fat soluble vitamins like vitamin A and D, these are all found either primarily or exclusively in animal foods. And so if you're gonna cut all animal foods out of your diet, you have to have another way Of obtaining those nutrients. And, you know, so I think the vegans that do best are the ones that accept that and then supplement accordingly. And I still think there are a lot of risks and challenges to to doing that. But, you know, I know some vegans who've been able to pull that off just through like, you know, high level education uh, for themselves about what they need and, and a high level of vigilance and rigor about making sure that they're getting the amount of those nutrients on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, I was a macrobiotic vegan myself at one point. So I, and I've treated many vegans in my practice. I'm not coming to this from an ideological perspective. I respect people's choices. I'm purely coming to it from my experience as a clinician, 15 years and training thousands of healthcare practitioners. And then my own experience on a vegan diet um it's risky it can it be done well and can someone maintain their health absolutely is it likely usually not okay um
1: tr- kind of changing course if we if we we talked about how um it, it used to be that the uh, poor and impoverished were starving and now um people are starving in a different way because they're nutrient deficient and and it, it does look like there's been a flip-flop and and to some degree, you see rates of uh, obesity are much higher among the, the poor people in America. And so for someone who, you know, because again, vitamins can be very expensive, but for for someone who is not wealthy and, and is looking to make health improvements, do you have advice uh, that that isn't going
2: to like uh radically mess with their financial plan yeah i do um and this comes from research that's been recently published in the past couple of years so um there's a a nutrition researcher named ty beal who i really like a lot he works for a, a an ngo that is dedicated to ending malnutrition around the world so they primarily focus on developing countries, but believe it or not, malnutrition is still an issue. Going back to what you were saying about the US being kings in the US, that's true for some of us, right? But there's still a shocking amount of poverty and malnutrition even in in, in our neighborhoods here in the US. And so um, the question that they have tried to ask in their studies is where do we get the biggest bang for our buck from a nutritional perspective? Because you know, a lot of these countries are very poor. You know, you, you can't say, okay, yeah, take five hundred dollars of supplements a month and eat ribeye steaks. Like that's just not going to fly in right. many of these places. So, um what they they measured the nutrient density of foods, and then they considered bioavailability, which I'll just briefly explain. You know, if you look at a food label, you'll see a, a a listing of the nutrients in that food what that label doesn't tell you is that you're not going to absorb 100 of those nutrients that are listed how much you absorb is determined by the bioavailability of those nutrients in that food and that means how much do you actually absorb and how much can your body actually utilize when you eat that food and let me give you an example of how this differs from you know plant to animal foods and this is another reason why people can get in trouble on on purely plant-based diets the bioavailability of calcium in spinach is less than 5%. Whoa, I didn't know that. I always thought spinach was a great source of calcium. Well, that's what everybody says, and that's what it says on paper. But if, if you, if you uh, are eating calcium in spinach, you're only going to absorb a very small amount of that calcium. So the exact number would, would be that it would take 16 servings of spinach to get the same amount of absorbable calcium as you would get from one eight ounce glass of milk. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And by by the way, I bet spinach spinach
1: has some protein in it too,
2: which I know is less bioavailable. It definitely. So dairy, you know, dairy products get a bad rap and, and they can be problematic for some people but the bioavailability of calcium in dairy is on the order of 30 to 35%. So that's six to seven times more bio, you know, more calcium that you'll absorb from a given amount of dairy products than you would from a given amount of calcium. The same is true for iron. So the form of iron that's in meat is called heme iron and that is extremely bioavailable. You, you digest it and absorb it very well. The form of iron that's in, plant foods is called ferrous iron and that is pretty poorly absorbed so there's studies that have shown that vegetarian diets reduce non-heme iron absorption by 70 percent and total iron absorption by 85 percent so wow. if you're eating if you're eating a vegetarian diet you're going to absorb 85 percent less iron than if you're eating a, a diet that has meat so it's, it's fascinating me because i remember some uh,
1: podcast or radio show which talked to the impossible people and there was a, a whole thing about them trying to mimic heme but not on, on a on a way we absorbed it just to our eye apparently we have this desire to, as people to eat bloody things so they were adding like beet
2: juice into their burger to, to mimic heme Maybe they should have asked the question: Why do we have an innate desire to right. eat that, and 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 not try to make us not eat that? You know, yeah. like yeah. so. So going back to your question, they did this study, and and the, again, the goal of the study was: What are the foods that are most nutrient dense and cheapest, lowest in calories? So so that's that's the definition of nutrient density is. By calorie, how many nutrients does that food have? So a food that's very low in calories, but very high in nutrients, you just get more bang for your buck for that food, right? And then they quantified all of the foods based on their levels of vitamin A, folate, vitamin B12, calcium, iron, and zinc, which are the nutrients of the greatest concern around the world. In other words, they're the ones that most people tend to be deficient in. They're also the ones that can cause the biggest problems if you're deficient in them. So the foods, uh, it, it, the, the, of the top 20 foods, 17 were animal foods. Whoa. 17 out of 20. The only plant foods that were in that top 20 were dark leafy green vegetables. So kale, chard, uh, collard greens, those kinds of re- food. They're very nutrient dense. Those were actually number four on the list. And then vitamin A rich fruits and vegetables. So like the brightly colored you know, red peppers, carrots, those kinds of vegetables. And then other vegetables, that was number 20. Of, of the top uh, seven foods, four of them were organ meats. Wow. So liver was number one. And, wow. Uh, so liver had the top score. And in lo- this, and this uh, scale, lower is better because it, it refers to the number of calories you'd have to eat of a given food to meet the nutrient need. So liver was 11. You'd only have to eat 11 calories of liver to meet these basic nutrient thresholds. Spleen was number two. Then we had small dried fish, um, dark leafy green vegetables, um, bivalves, so those are like oysters, um, kidney, heart, crustaceans like shrimp, goat, beef, eggs, milk, vitamin A rich vegetables, canned fish, lamb, cheese, and other vegetables. So that's the answer to your question is like, you know, the good news about organ meats is they are cheap right. relative to you go into the store, if you can even find them, which is not, not always the case, but you ask the people at the meat counter, they'll probably go in the back and then bring out the liver. You know, you're going to, it's not going to be like $35 a pound, like grass fed filet mignon or, or ribeye or something. It's going to be, you know, in the single digits usually. Right. right. Now, the problem is most of us don't eat liver and we've, uh, you know, if you didn't grow up living, eating it, you probably won't like it. Um, but I just wanted to answer your question objectively because you asked, you know, what is the, what are the foods that are affordable, that are more affordable that can dramatically increase your nutrient intake? I would say eat shellfish, eat liver and organ meats, eat dark leafy green vegetables, and then you know, eat beef and eggs and dairy, and you can get those if you go, if you do a farm share, for example, we buy our meat directly from the farm and we have a chest freezer. So then sometimes we'll, we'll get like a box from them or we'll go in with a couple other families and buy like a quarter of a cow or half of a cow. If you do it that way, it's actually really affordable. Uh, so there are lots of ways you can bring the the cost down. Do you think that
1: there's any, uh, you know, lobster was a garbage thing uh, many years ago. People didn't want to eat that and they would like get it and serve it to prisoners in the, the Northwest. And now it's like, you know, this big treat for people having a lobster. Do you see any path towards America like hyper uh focusing on organs and suddenly they're like the prized things i mean that would be kind of awesome
2: well it used to be that way actually um if you if you research this you'll find back before world war ii and especially especially in world war one around that time liver was considered to be a superfood and that's why you know like my grandparents ate liver and a lot of people who are old enough who you know i'm almost 50 uh, that generation who was born in like the late 1800s or the early 1900s, they grew up eating liver. Uh, maybe some people listening have heard of cod liver oil. Um, sure, My dad grew up Take you know, his grandma gave him cod liver oil when he was sick. Uh, well, that's a, that's a fish liver and the very nutrient dense, very high in in, in vitamin A and vitamin and D and EPA and DHA. So this, this, um, has existed. This knowledge has existed even in our own culture up until really like the lat. I think after World War II, there was a shift away from organ meats and then even the odd cuts like brisket, uh, chuck roast, oxtail. You know, these are making a comeback now, I think. Like a lot of good restaurants you go out to will serve these cuts of meat now. It's not just, you know, boneless steaks. Sure. But... Um, those those were all very popular cuts uh, in the, in the early 1900s, and and people ate nose to tail. Um, and when you look at like uh, Native Americans um, from you know prior to colonize, uh, to to uh, Europeans coming to the U.S., like some of the early accounts of their hunting methods showed that they would often throw the muscle meat to the dogs. So you know they would kill a buffalo, and the first thing they would do would be go right for the liver, or right. the heart, or the <laughs> kidney, and the the organs were prized. And the muscle meat, which is you know where you would make the steaks from, and the chops and things like that, they would just toss those because they yeah. some they didn't have any scientific studies, you know, to, but they just had generations of trial and error and knowledge that told them that those were the foods that would, that were um, the best for them to eat. Yeah. I, I grew up eating liver, liver and
1: onions is one of my absolute favorite dishes ever. Lucky you, Yeah. Especially if you cook it in bacon f- fat. Oh my God. Is it yeah. good? Um, <laughs> I've tried so many times to make that dish for my wife and kids or like a steak and kidney dish and, and they just will not, um, will not eat it. But, um, for anybody who needs, uh, recipe help for this. There's a great cookbook that, uh, or two actually, uh, Fergus Henderson, a
2: great British. Oh yeah. That's great. great called, book.
1: called nose to tail on nose to tail eating. And then there's yeah. another wonderful cookbook called the awful O F F A L cookbook. And, and you can, you can turn this stuff into delicious food. It, you know, I think for stuff like liver, Uh, If you overcook liver, it's, it's terrible. It becomes like waxy and and not great. Um, And if you undercook it, it's a little gross too, in my opinion. So there are ways certainly of cooking this stuff that will increase its palatability.
2: Yeah. And I I would say also um, pate is tends to be a pretty good, like um, gateway. (laughs) So I guess you could say like variety kind of meat. Um, And
3: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Uh,
1: Liverwurst, Braunschweiger. Braunschweiger. um, Oh, my God. I I ate all that stuff as a kid. And, um, you know, when you... if you get a whole chicken or a whole turkey from the store, it almost always has the innards in there. It's just in a little bag yeah. that we tend to throw away. And you can do a lot with that stuff.
2: Yeah. I would say, yeah, chicken liver pate in particular, a lot of people who don't like other other kinds of organ meats will eat that. Uh, I don't have any affiliation with them, but US Wellness Meats has a whole section on their website with all these different products like Liverwurst, Braunschweiger, head cheese, uh, oxtails, beef tongue. Um, so if you're a little bit adventurous, you could, you know, try that out. Another way to do it now is to supplement with them. So, right. um, you know, I've, I have a supplement, an organ supplement, because I just found, uh, over, over many years of working with patients that I just couldn't get that many people yeah. to eat the organs, but they will actually take the supplements. And so what, what we do there is you get, you know, organs from 100% grass fed cattle in New Zealand, very clean environment, very low in toxins. And then they freeze dry, they freeze dry the organs, and then they desiccate them into a powder, and then put put it in a capsule. So it's really the closest that you can get to eating them. And it's a real food. It's not like the nutrients are extracted from the organs and put into a pill. It's basically the organs just frozen, dried, and made into a powder and put into the capsules so i have a lot of patients that will do that (laughs) whereas they won't actually eat the organs and i'm fine with that i'm because like you're still getting the benefit well is there Um, anything to that that uh, like
1: like I, i i did have this did occur to me at one point like you talked about uh pulling a carrot out of out of the ground and it starts to lose its micronutrients uh, what about cooking
2: this stuff? What about uh, desiccating it? Does that, does that, do you lose anything by doing that? Desiccating is great. Usually freezing, like if you, it's the same with fish, right? If you catch a fish and freeze it right away, it's going to taste closer to being fresh than it is if it takes a while before it's frozen. Right. And it's the same with the desiccation. You know, when they freeze, when they, they slaughter the animal and then freeze the organs right away, you're really preserving that nutrition. Uh, value so there's not really much loss there with cooking it really depends on the vitamin and the mineral or the or the phytonutrient in some cases it is better to eat you know you'll preserve some more of the nutrition raw in other cases you'll actually release you know you'll make it more absorbable and bioavailable if you cook it okay um uh, you know so kale is a good example like if if you eat too much raw kale, actually there are compounds in there called, that are goitrogenic, which can lead to, you know, I- I- interference with iodine uptake in the thyroid and you're going to actually get a goiter, a swelling right. of your thyroid gland. So like green smoothies with raw kale every day probably not a good idea if you, especially if you have a susceptibility to thyroid issues. So what I tell people is like, generally it's good to eat a combination of cooked and raw foods. Don't worry too much about that. If, if you do that, you're going to you're you're gonna be fine, right. um, but probably eating all cooked foods or all raw foods is is not a great idea for that reason. Amazing, amazing, and um, uh, your your
1: liver supplement is it eleven calories a tablet or, or do you
2: have to measure? <laughs> it's pretty it low out? in calories actually, but no, it's so we have a five organs in it because they all the organs have different nutrient profiles, and so I wanted to make sure that people get the full spectrum. So it's actually liver. Heart, kidney, pancreas, and spleen, uh, but there's twice as much liver as any of the other organs because liver is the most nutrient dense of, of all of the organs. Um, and, and if you take it you know every day, it's equivalent to eating a full serving of those organs during, you know during the week, which is about what I recommend. Um, okay. You can't overdo it with organs. I should mention this. because liver is so rich in in iron, particularly um you can you know i mentioned that genetic condition before where some people store excess iron it's, it's I, ha- I actually
1: have that i'm oh, supposed you to give blood a couple of times a year okay because so of you that.
2: know what i'm talking about yeah, yeah and I've, I've i've diagnosed several people with this over the years and and it's on a spectrum it's not like you either have it or you don't have it you can have you know some people have a very aggressive version of it where they have to be really careful other people. They can just donate blood, like you mentioned, a few times a year, and they don't have to really worry about their diet too much. But I, I generally don't recommend eating more than two servings of organ meats a week. Okay. Uh, and the, you don't need to. I mean, it's they're so you think of them as like a superfood, not something that you eat three times a day. Right. It, so
1: uh, I'm. I imagine this is all on the labeling of of a supplement. You can take yep. the supplement every day, and you're not going to exceed two servings a week. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, man, this has been this has been wild and fascinating and wonderful and um, a lot to think about. I I like eating organs personally, but it's so hard to get my family to eat them that I yeah. kind of just gave up. And maybe I'll go back in with how about shellfish? So, yeah, they like shellfish? shellfish is
2: easy. Yeah, they yeah. like shellfish. Well, that's a good as you could as you heard from the scale. They're they're in that top top six, I think. So if, if they want to eat organs then you know, oysters, clams, uh, shrimp, you know, all the shellfish are super nutrient dense too. And that goes for everybody listening. Of course, too. I think they're a little easier for people to get their head around.
1: Yeah. I actually heard a, a decent, what I found to be a decent argument to get vegans to eat shellfish. Cause they were almost like uh, a, a similar, like maybe not shrimp and, and lobster and stuff like that, but uh, oysters and mussels and, and, um, uh, scallops that are, that they don't have nervous systems and, and they do, they grow in place. They are similar to a vegetable in that way.
2: Yeah. I, this might, this often shocks people, but I would almost say that it would be better to be a vegetarian, probably not vegan, but vegetarian that eats organ meats and shellfish than to be a, uh, a, 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 an omnivore that only eats muscle meats. Right.
0: Because right. Yeah. Just,
2: just that—that's how nutrient dense those foods are, and if you only eat like, especially if you're eating like boneless chicken, you know, boneless skinless chicken breast as your primary meat. Or I mean, I eat poultry, a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. That that you know, going back that list, that chicken and poultry weren't aren't even on. They're at the very bottom of that list. Right. So they're, I'm not saying we shouldn't eat them. Again, I'm just <laughs> saying if you're thinking about nutrient density red meat and organ meats and shellfish are way higher than any poultry.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Chris, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Ethan. It
2: was great to be on the show. Yeah. I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise.
4: And now
2: for the Q&A. Here is a question from
4: Heath. Hi, Heath. He says, hey, Team Glutton, I'm a longtime listener, first time questioner from Perth, Western Australia.
1: Hey, we're really
4: international lately. I know. <laughs> he says, I have heard Ethan discuss his diet, stating it is high protein and how he focuses on hitting the protein goal for the day. In terms of percentages, what percentage of macros does your protein make up?
1: I think it's like 45 or 50%. It's close to that. I'd have to look. I have it written down somewhere. And basically, I'm on maintenance, and that I'm not even thinking in terms specifically of macros. Like, I'll eat approximately eight ounces of very lean meat, chicken, fish, four times a day. And then that coupled with a whey protein shake in the morning and a casein protein shake at night. And and I've I've got my my macros, but I don't know exactly what the percentages are.
4: But would, um so you said 40 45 is that pretty for people who don't know? Is that I'd like say a pretty 40, standard? 45 50. 45 50.
1: I don't know what the standards are. You, you know, there's people can do anything. You can okay. go like I, I think like for me it doesn't, it, you know, I can, it's it's very weird because I think um, the scale will reflect carbs more immediately, but I know that it's water. Mm-hmm. And so if I had extremely low fat one day and upped my carbs a lot to balance everything out and... Then I might see a reaction on the scale, but I, I would know that's just water because I've increased my carbs. So I've increased my body's capacity to store water. Um, and on the flip side, if I go high fat and low carbs, which is like basically my Sunday, I might see a little dip on the scale because I've decreased my body's capacity to store water because I've taken in less carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the point of me telling you this is, but, but I don't. I tend to on maintenance not, um, you know. I try to eat pretty lean. I'm not having like salad dressings or butter or anything like that, or eating cheese. But it's all kind of just this eight ounce thing, and that that works for me. I don't know that everybody should eat two pounds of meat every day. Right. You know?
4: Yeah. It, I mean, if I've learned anything from you over these years now of this, it's like, yeah, it's it's individual and there's like definitely some general guidelines and and also just how it is, um, it could be a little confusing when you try to, if you don't know anything about figuring out your macros and all these things, you know, it can be a little overwhelming. But if you just slowly go online, find a calculator, figure out your, you know, it, it it's actually doable i guess it, it's it, you know
1: it totally is i have gotten into way more eyeballing so i'm not writing shit down but i did write shit down for a number of years but i'll give you a for instance um i'm in a strange town right now that i'm not familiar with so i go to the store and it doesn't necessarily have exactly everything i'm used to having so i'm used to A um, 96 slash 4 ground beef mix, which is 96% lean, 4% fat. And that I'm happily eating, uh, you know, I can eat eight ounces of that four times a day. And then I know the amount of carbs I have literally with like, I could have a cup of rice at every meal and it's fine uh in this town i can't find that the leanest ground beef i can find is 90/10 which is a way bigger shift so i'm getting less protein and way more fat you know not way more but a, a, a good amount more right it's mm-hmm. not 80/20 but 90/10 is a good deal more fat so now i've got to kind of reduce some of the carbohydrates i'm eating because I'm not totally used to eating this kind of composed meal. Does that make sense to you?
4: Yeah, 100%. 100%. So it's like a little bit of a, um, what is that word? I don't want to, it's like not balancing, but yeah, like constant re, it could be a rejiggering, you know?
1: And I I think that people hitting some baseline for protein, that's a good idea. I don't, I can't think of anybody that that's not a good idea for, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about the bioavail- avail- a bioavailability of protein from animal products, but like at the end of the day, if you're a v- vegan or a vegetarian or something and you're having like pea protein or soy-, soy protein or something, hit your protein targets, however you do that. And everything else is kind of, um, less important as long as you're not exceeding your daily totals, right? For Mm -hmm. calories. Um, But I think that the thing that has helped me is I've never, I, you know, as long as you're getting, I think like 10 to 15% of your calories every day from fat, you're fine. So you don't actually need more than that. And so, you can't go to zero on fats, but you can go to zero on carbohydrates and be fine. And so like it's really – there's a lot of room there I think for individuals to figure out through trial and error what what is the best ratio for themselves. So I'm somewhat hesitant to talk about exactly the amount of calories I eat and exactly sure. the proportions because – I don't know that that matters to anybody else. That's me playing with it a lot and going like on days that I'm in the gym, I I feel better when I have more carbs and less fat. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And on days when I'm not in the gym, even if it's just psychosomatic or uh, some kind of like weird emotional glitch where I know I haven't been to the gym today, that's basically every Sunday, I haven't exercised. There's going to possibly be a bump on the scale tomorrow if I eat carbs because I haven't sweat at all really. Then I reduce my carbs and have more fat just to avoid that maybe even, right? And also, yeah. I, I start to, by the end of the week, start dreaming about ribeye steak. So, I want a little bit more fat. And so, that's what's been workable for me. And anybody can do that, but they should portion it appropriate to their body Um, and also I would suggest playing around with it and going like, if you go super low fat and don't feel good up your fat, reduce your carbs a little bit. If you go super, you know, high fat and don't feel great, then you can, you know, balance it out. You can figure all this stuff out for yourself, which I think is a, a a better way to do it than just going like, you know. This doctor said to eat exactly in this proportion, you know, unless the doctor is saying that for a reason and looking at your blood and looking at your, your body and going like, well, here's what I think is beneficial about this and try that out and see if it helps. And if you're trying to lose weight, see if you lose weight. And if you do and you feel great and it's not super hard, then that's what you should do.
4: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. I don't know why I called that a doctor. Doctor was maybe not the right person. If your aunt says you need to do keto um, or whatever, you know, name your random friend says <laughs> yeah. you need to go low fat. Um, I still think protein super important. Uh, and And so long as you're getting the amount of protein you're getting and you're not exceeding your daily total calorie intake, it doesn't really matter, in my opinion, as long as you're The one thing I know you cannot do is go to zero fat. Right. But if you're eating animal products, it would be virtually impossible to do that anyway.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. And thank you to Heath for the question. Thanks, Heath. If you have a question that you would like Ethan to answer, please email it to us at americanglutton.net.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.